Hear now the word of the Lord. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of of the God of Israel. They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there, there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die there were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, I'll say that we'll be going through chapters 5 all the way to chapter 7, verse 1. So please have your Bible open. Uh, as a young man, I had the opportunity to spend two months in the Middle East. And at one point of my trip, I was in Egypt, and I took a train from Alexandria, which is in the northern side of uh, Egypt, down to Luxor, which is a city uh, much further south. And I remember taking the train, and the train look exactly like what you would see in Indiana Jones. And uh, I put this title here uh, thinking perhaps some of, you may, some of you may get the reference, but some of you may not, which is sad. You need to go home and watch, no, actually, go home and read the Bible. But after that, you could watch this movie. Um, I was so excited to, to ride this like rickety old train. Felt like it was still powered by like coal. And um, you could feel like every single like part of the railroad. And I had my camera with me 
and I'll be humming the song. Like, I'll be humming. I was a big nerd. I was, I was literally humming. Dun, 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 and I was, like, going around the train. And uh, I needed to go to the bathroom. So there's a, there's a toilet on the back of the car. And so I, I, walked, I walked there with my camera. And I was singing. Dun, 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 and then I lifted the toilet seat. And there was nothing in there. It's just a big hole. And I saw the railroad tracks just f like flying by. <laughs> so I, I dun -dun 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 the toilet seat back down. And then I went back to my seat. I figured I can hold it until we got to Luxor. Uh, but the ancient world is truly fascinating. I mean, we live in modern times. And America is a modern country and nation. But just going to places like Egypt, and we went to Israel and visited many places there, I was thinking it would be wonderful if uh, maybe even people in our church got to visit uh, the ancient world in Israel and the Middle East. But one of the things that can kind of, kind of bring us back to this kind of ancient, mythical picture is when we think of the Ark of the Covenant. In the movie that I had forementioned before, uh, it's uh, depicted as something that is housing some great mythical power, but it still remains a mystery. But in the text today, we are shown what the Ark represents and a mystery revealed to a certain extent. So I have three points for us this morning, and that's the sovereignty of God, the severity of God, and the sanctity of God. The sovereignty of God, the severity of God, and the sanctity of God. And the sovereignty of God is going to cover from verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5. So the Philistines were migrants from the West. We saw in the Bible they were from a place called Kaftor, and today we would know that as the island of Crete. And they probably made their way from Crete to northern Egypt, and then they would continue to go up into the land of Canaan a little after the Israelites made it there. And so just as you would imagine, like two rival groups in high school taking seats on one end of the dining table and the other end of the dining table, in the school cafeteria, eventually to meet in the middle. It was a very 80s teen drama way of looking at the current scenario. And that's basically what you might kind of picture here. But we are now in chapter 5, where the Israelites... I, I also realize when I make these 80s references, many of you might not get it, and some of you may not have grown up in those times, but some of you may have, so... Yay for you. No, but I, I, did, uh, I did grow up in those times and where I was on one side, and then when you got into the middle, then you would have to fight. It, it's just one of those things. No? Nobody? Okay. But then um, it was just one of those things, and I think now it's just, you know, if that ever happened, you would call them some, like, like the wrong pronoun, and then you get canceled on on like social media. You guys laugh, but I'm not joking. That's, that's like a real thing. But um, yeah, that's basically what it also was in the ancient world. Um, we are now looking at a picture in a more broad sense, in a grander sense in chapter five, 
where when they met in the middle, the Israelites lost. They lost the battle in Ebenezer. They lost Hophni and Phinehas, the corrupt priests. They lost Eli, their leader and judge, for 40 years. And most importantly, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. Truly, the glory of God had departed. The Ark was taken to a city called Ashdod, which was probably the premier city. It was probably the main Philistine city in their pentopolis. They had five major cities. So it's probably their main city. And it was three miles from the Mediterranean coast. And in the scene of chapter 5 is set there. We begin there. They take the ark and they would place it next to the image of their own god, Dagon. And this was to symbolize how their god had defeated the god of the Israelites, Yahweh. So the picture we are being shown here is that the Philistines brought back the ark to set up in the shrine of Dagon because Dagon won and Yahweh lost, right? So presumably they had placed the ark in there as a token of their victory and went to rest afterward. But even before they had gotten to eat their breakfast the next day, they would go to the house of Dagon and they saw that Dagon had fallen face forward down in front of the Ark of Yahweh. And here is the key part of this front section, this first section, when it says, So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Again, pointing to a familiar scene, which you may have seen in movies, where the favorite in the fight immediately gets knocked out by someone who you thought was the underdog. And then as, he's gets, as he gets knocked out, all his friends come and pick him back up, asking, hey, hey, are you all right? And the guy brushes them off. He's like, nothing, nothing. It was just a fluke. And then his friends throw him back into the fight. So they put him back in his place. And the next morning, they come back to a scene that's even worse. This is Humpty Dumpty before Humpty Dumpty. Dagon has fallen face downward again before the Ark of Yahweh, but this time with his head and hands cut off. There is no glue strong enough to restore this. There is no recovering from this. This is a TKO. In the ancient world, we see that people would do this to their enemies to show their utter superiority over them. They would take a king, a defeated king, and sever his head, sever his hands, and from his torso to display to their occupied lands to show that they had this decisive victory. And in fact, later on in 1 Samuel, we'll see uh, how the Philistines would show their clear uh, victory over the Israelites and the uh, do this to King Saul. They would cut off his head, cut off his hands, and display it around their lands. But the Lord God was showing the Philistines his clear victory over the Philistines and their God in Gaza in a language that they would have and should have understood. However, in verse 5, we see that they did not understand, either by refusal or ignorance. It mattered not. 
there is a clear difference in the fighters between gods. On one side, you have someone or something rampant throughout paganism where gods depend on man. They need men to set them back up. Just like the Greek gods would need the prayers of man. There are ancient writings also outside of the Bible that depict this. One famous ancient text that you may have learned about in school is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a series of poems and it dates back uh, over 4,500 years. It's dated actually around 2100 BC and about Gilgamesh, king of Uruk. And in it, there is also the, also, the Epic of Gilgamesh also had a flood story. And in this flood story, instead of Noah, there was a man named Utnapishtim who survives the flood in a boat. And then after that, he, he offers a sacrifice at the end. He talks about how when he offered the sacrifice after the flood, the gods would smell the aroma of the sacrifice and drink offering, and the gods would gather over him like flies, like flies would be swarming around. Apparently, gods also needed food and drink that they must be supplies, supplied by their devotees Otherwise, like anyone else, they will also begin to languish and deteriorate. And because of the flood, it had been weeks since gods had a proper meal. Hence the picture of this greedy response like flies gathered over the sacrificer. You see, in classic paganism, albeit the gods may be much more powerful than man, they needed man to sustain them. But when we look at this passage, this passage flies directly in the face of such thinking. Not only does this section teach the Philistines the utter superiority of Yahweh over Dagon, it's showing that the sovereignty of God is unmatched and that his sovereignty is absolutely independent from his people. Maybe there is a level of romance in thinking that while you need a God, maybe someone like Dagon, he also needs you. It's this interdependency that people want to believe even to this day. And even to this day, this kind of thinking has infected even those people that profess themselves to be Christians, those people that call themselves the church where they would say things like, God needs you to give him permission to act. Or you need to give him permission to come into your life. Or you need to allow him to give you a blessing. This kind of thinking is not from the Bible, but it's from paganism. A lot of contemporary theology is rife with this kind of thinking. But a God that needs your permission... A God that needs to be picked up and put back in his place is not God. We would do well then not to confuse Yahweh with what we think is a romantic view of reciprocate need versus what really is the God of the Bible. We are warned then not to cast Yahweh into the image of Dagon.
God does not need us. And if you think about it, that is incredibly good news. That is incredibly good news. The severity of God. This is from verses 6 through chapter 6, verse 12. The Philistines thought that the ark had fallen into their hands. But in actuality, they had fallen into the hands of God. And it says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. God would strike the people of Ashdod and its surrounding areas with severe tumors. And because we see in uh, chapter 6, verse 5, it was likely caused by rats, this plague. Many scholars think that it may have been similar to the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague would cause painful tumors to grow in your armpits and your groin and sometimes even the sides of your neck. And without treatment, you had a high likelihood of dying. For the bubonic plague, if untreated, you would have had maybe less than a 50% chance of survival. It was nasty, and it was painful. So you can imagine a plague rampaging through your community where half or maybe more people will very quickly die. And so by the time we get to verse 7 of chapter 5, the people of Ashdod know that their God, Dagon, and they themselves, they cannot stand up to the God of the Israelites. So they would send the ark to Gath, another Philistine city. But the ark also came to Gath with plague and a very great panic. Now they're playing hot potato. They're sending the ark like, please, we can't take this. It's too much. And when they send the ark to Ekron now, even as it gets to the city limits of Ekron, and this is me paraphrasing what it's saying, they respond with, no way, Jose. Because now they knew. This wasn't happening in Ashdod because Ashdod was particularly more evil or maybe more weak. It seems as though for seven months, wherever the ark went, the hand of God was absolutely crushing the Philistines. The ark was doing more damage than whatever the Israelites could have ever done in the battle in chapter 4 in Ebenezer. And in verse 12, there is a very interesting comment. It was getting so bad that the cry of the city went up to heaven. It was so bad that their cries had to go beyond their local deities, their local gods, or even Dagon, because they were not strong enough to save them or themselves. And here we go to chapter 6. Again, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? Because they had no answer. They had no response. They had no relief. They call for the priests and diviners to help. And here is their answer in verse 3. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, 
but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off from you, from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had, severe, had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and the ark of the Lord and place it, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. And since there are five main cities in Palestine or Philistia, and each city had a lord over them, they would create this guilt offering, five gold tumors and five gold rats. Anyone outside of this story might see this and think this is funny. Imagine making golden molds of your tumor or making gold molds of your rats that are destroying your civilization. But to the Philistines, it was no laughing matter. They were completely humbled. They were hit in a trifold manner, which is explained in verse 5. The tumors were killing the people. The sheer number of rats that brought the disease in the first place are now ravaging the land, and all their gods are shown and rendered useless. And they are reminded of how God took the Israelites out of Egypt, and they dare not make that same mistake by hardening their own hearts. So this is what they did. They would take a brand new cart, and pulling this brand new cart would be two milking cows that are suckling calves which have never been under a yoke before. That means they never pulled anything before, let alone a full cart with the ark and the gold gilt offerings. The priests and diviners would devise this plan so they can know for sure if all this, as incredible as it was, it may have been a coincidence. You know what? It might have been a coincidence. So they needed to know for sure. So in a sense, they stacked the deck against the cart, ever going back to Beth Shemesh. This cart isn't broken in. The cows are mothers that need to feed their babies. And they would shut up the calves at home in the opposite direction. And to top it off, these cows have never pulled anything before. And they just would put on them a very heavy load. And in verse 10 is the moment of truth, because if the cows didn't go to Beth Shemesh, they'll chalk it up to what they'll say is coincidence, and know that this has nothing to do with Yahweh. They needed to know. 
is everything that's happening right now, all this disease, all this terrible like ravaging of the land, are gods being shown to us useless? All the previous thoughts that we have, the ideologies, the philosophies that we've had, they're all crumbling down. Is this Yahweh or is it just bad luck? And in verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Any milking cow, or any mother for that matter, would have gone straight back to her calves. But contrary to nature, it's as if an invisible hand was guiding them, and they would go directly straight to Israel. And they would low as they went, probably because of their calves, but they did not still turn to their right or left. And the Philistines were able to witness every single part of this. And now one might wonder, what did the Philistines do after witnessing this? Did they simply return back home to resume what they would consider normal? Did they take down their posters that read seven months to slow the spread or, and then replace it to back to normal now? Did they defect then maybe to Israel, perhaps to worship them, the true God? Or did some return back to only have their hearts harden even more? And while I don't know for sure exactly what happened, what we see for a fact is that God would reveal himself to the degree that he did to his enemies and to the enemies of his people. This is what we get to see here, the degree of how God would reveal himself to his enemies. Perhaps in the era of the new covenant then, this should give us all the more reason to continue to evangelize to those that we are sent to no matter how far we think they are, whether it is physically or spiritually, because it is the blood of Jesus that brings us close to God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, the Apostle Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The sanctity of God. And this is from verses 13 in chapter 6 to 7 verse 1. Now the severity and sacredness or sanctity are two sides of the same coin, which is pointing to the ineffableness of God. 
with verse 13, we have a transition in the story from the ark crossing the line from Philistine territory back to Israel land. However, the severity of God is not changed. God does not change according to his location or his disposition. He is the same now as he was before and will be forevermore. In verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their harvest, wheat harvest in the valley. That means it was probably May or June in the year. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. We don't know who this Joshua was, only what his name means. Joshua means Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. And it just so happened that as the cows would be lowing and going, they would stop in front of a great stone, which was perfectly conducive to give a proper sacrifice. And so the Levites were able to take down the ark, and the people were able to build an altar to give offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. And the five lords of the Philistines were able to return to their five cities, which are named here. But the focus of this latter section is what we see in the next set of verses. And they focus on the ineffable holiness of God. In verse 19, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. You would think that now that the ark has returned to Israel, they should know better. Like the people of God should know better. They'll know what to do. But in verse 9, verse 19 rather, some of the men looked upon the ark of the Lord. Some people just don't want a holy God. There is no fear of God. And some of us have grown up in the church, perhaps not too different from the men at Beth Shemesh. We know little something about the Bible, but clearly not enough. People even nowadays will quote 1 John 4.18 out of context saying, I don't like what you're saying because I read in the Bible, 
but perfect love casts out fear. Not knowing that if you read the actual verse, the whole verse is referring to acting out of fear of punishment rather than perfecting or completing your love for God and his word. It has nothing to do with not fearing God. But this lack of fear led to a lack of sense, not regarding the holy God in the manner that they should. And they looked upon the ark. And we've read that the Lord would strike them with a great blow. Now, some of you may be wondering, did they look at the ark? Did they just look at the ark? Or did they look inside it like this movie I saw and their faces melted? I don't know, right? Because the word upon in Hebrew can mean either. It can mean either they looked at it or they looked in it. I would contend to you this morning that it doesn't matter that they looked at it or in it. In fact, I, I kind of lean toward they just looked at it. That's why they would cry out, who is able to stand before the Lord, the holy God? Even in Numbers 4, we see God will give specific instructions to even properly cover tabernacle furniture so no one would inadvertently look at it and die. So you see, God will give these provisions as an act of mercy. He didn't want those serving the tabernacle, like the Kohathites, to just die. So he gave them specific instructions on how to handle properly the tabernacle furniture. This is why we also have this great conviction that we ought to worship God in a manner that he pleases. Otherwise, the other side is death. We have to, we have to think that God is a holy God. Worship is not about me, but worship is to someone. And who is that someone? And how should we um, reflect that in worship? I mention this because sometimes we may be inclined to think that God is being overly severe here. Are you trying to say that they just looked at the ark and died? And then claims of God being fickle or capricious would ensue, right? And the picture of an evil tyrant would come into your mind. People would just kill people who would look at him the wrong way, perhaps. But these are not the same things. While a tyrant may do things to satisfy his vanity or insecurities, God is neither a tyrant or insecure. The violent and brutal dictator Joseph Stalin was known to distrust anyone and everyone around him. In his communist regime, he had instilled such fear in the people. Anyone who would do anything ever so slightly that was against him would be executed. He ended up trusting no one because he knew, and this is what he said, that they were only acting the way they were in front of him, not out of love for him because they just wanted to save their own skins or for their own ambitions. His paranoia until the day he died would only increase, exacerbating his temper, leading him to be more and more savage as he grew older. And even when his doctor would be concerned because of this, 
Because his health started to deteriorate, he either had a heart attack or a series of strokes in 1953. And so his doctor would go to him and he just told him, I think you should take it a little easy. And then Stalin went into a furious rage and had his doctor arrested. And then he would arrest not only that doctor, but all the doctors around him, accusing them of a medical conspiracy, calling them murderers in white gowns. He would head the trial against those doctors, but their lives ultimately were spared because he died before the trial. When I see stories like that and people's responses to passages like this, it seems as though people can't help but to attribute their shortcomings or their own evil to God when they don't understand something. But when we read this passage, while the first response by the people of Beth Shemesh was proper, who was able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The second response was off the mark. And to whom shall he go up away from us? God is holy, ununderstandable, because he is not like us. And that's true. But the second part is this. How can we get rid of him? That's what people are saying. We even see later on in Gerasenes, the people would try the same thing with Jesus. After Jesus would restore people by getting the demon out, sending these demons into pigs, the people of that town would beg him to leave. There is no self-examination. There is no searching beyond your regular conventional means. They just want God removed. And I think that's the natural reaction when you come across a holy God. However, we aren't left to our own devices when it comes to knowing who God really is. I said in an earlier point that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. And while this is true, it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. And it doesn't mean he doesn't want us. In Deuteronomy, this is a book where people think like, Deuteronomy, it's just these archaic and random rules like mixing fabrics or eating a goat in its mother's milk. And then you'll have all this criticism. Like you read Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it says this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set in his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. That's in Deuteronomy. We cannot have God conform to our mode of thinking or our understanding. God is utterly holy, and it goes against the devices of our culture where we want to either make him our best friend or some distant God in the skies. 
the devices of our cultures would, culture would make him either a chummy buddy or an old man with a long white beard. We want to have the bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot, or coexist. But God is not someone you can look upon without any serious regard, or someone that you can simply wish away and ignore so that you can make him out to be whatever you want. Dale Ralph Davis would write this, that we must regard his presence as our supreme joy and our supreme peril. Jonathan Edwards would note that it is the absence of godly fear that signifies a lack of knowledge of God. But to truly understand both these things, we have to do what God has done earlier in the chapter. We must destroy our false images of God. Whether it was the Philistines or even the Israelites, the casual God that people want to worship simply does not exist. And he is not a helpless God. Rather, in the scriptures, we are shown the sovereignty, severity, and sanctity of God. And this knowledge leads the believer to intimacy, but not familiarity. This knowledge would lead the worshiper to nearness in worship, but not cordiality in ritual. And so my prayer is that the truth of God's word tear down every graven image of God that we have so that we would worship the true King of Kings, the true Lord of Lords. We will acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior and worship him with all that we have for all eternity, regarding and recognizing this as an incredible, incredible privilege that we have received by the grace and mercy of God. How incredible is it that even though he does not need us, he loves us and he wants us. What an incredible God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us to shape us, to sharpen us, to transform us. Too many and too often, too many times have we let the devices of the world and its culture around it shape us instead of your word. Oh God, we ask that you would now shape us by your word Change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding, ears to hear, eyes to see, that we would no longer remain blind or deaf, that we would see truly the God for who you are and worship you as you please, living in the joy that you have promised us. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what we have been given in his word and reflect in our own lives and hearts. So that, we ought, so that we can give him the worship that we ought. Let's pray.